The story of Easter begins with despair. The story of Easter begins with an expectation not of life, but of death. Don't ever forget that the first disciples did not expect Jesus to rise from the dead. Many of them had witnessed the cruelty of his death on the Roman cross. Some of them probably saw the guard thrust the spear into Jesus' side. And the very women that we read about here in Luke 24, in Luke 23, just the chapter before, just a few verses before this reading, we read that they had actually followed Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus And they watched Jesus' lifeless body laid into the tomb. After marking which tomb it was, we read in Luke 23 that they went home. They went home to prepare the spices and the ointments that they are bringing back on this early morning. They've come to deal with death. They haven't gone to the tomb to tell stories about what they remember about Jesus. They haven't gone to remind themselves of the words that Jesus said, his pithy statements or interesting things that he did. They haven't come to experience the mystical presence of Jesus, thinking that somehow he's with them even though he's dead. No. They have come to push back the stench of death in that hot Mediterranean climate. But when they got there, the tomb was empty. Verse 4 says that they were perplexed. One of the bigger understatements in Scripture, I think. Of course they were perplexed. Death worked in the first century exactly as it works in the 21st century. Dead people stay dead. The women aren't expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. But then they get rebuked by two angels who tell them in verse 5 that they should have expected him to rise from the dead. Why do you seek the living among the dead, they ask him, ask them. Remember, the angels say, remember what he told you. And in verse 8, we read that the women did remember what Jesus said. And I think this is more than just remembering a particular teaching of Jesus. I think this is finally having the context to understand all of the weird things Jesus said about his death. Remember, Peter rebuked Jesus because he talked about his death so much. The disciples had certainly heard Jesus talk about his death, but his death, gosh, That's not part of their plan for his life. They had looked to Jesus and said, Jesus, we have a wonderful plan for your life. You're going to become the king of Israel. And we're all going to rule with you. The problem is, if you claim to be a Messiah and got yourself killed, it was a pretty good indication you probably weren't the Messiah. And so not only were their own hopes and dreams in Jesus crushed, but their hopes and dreams for their own future were crushed. The women, they go and they tell the 11 remaining disciples, Luke won't tell us what happens to Judas until his sequel, 
uh, the book of Acts. And how do the men respond to these pillars of the early church, these disciples who are sent out as representatives of Jesus, even doing their own miracles, casting out demons? Does Matthew say, well, yes, of course. Of course Jesus rose from the dead. Does Philip say, well, that's right on time. Does Bartholomew say, well, that's exactly what we expected. No, of course not. They dismissed the women. You silly girls. That's idle talk. We don't believe you. I wonder, are you a skeptic here this morning? Maybe a friend or a family member has finally prevailed on you to attend an Easter service. And you're sitting here and you have some questions about whether or not any of this is true. Or maybe you want to believe it. But you feel like the gap is too far to cross. I want you to see that the first disciples didn't find faith any easier than we do. Their initial reaction to the news of Jesus' life, it's not joy, it's not worship, it's unbelief, it's skepticism. If you're hearing the Easter story and you're just astonished by this claim, if you're saying, no way, you might actually be closer to faith than you thought. Peter is a good example for us. Peter decides that he's going to examine the evidence himself. And so he runs to the tomb, verse 12. If you're familiar with the Gospels and all of their accounts of the resurrection, there's a lot of running on the first day of the week. That Easter Sunday, Peter runs to the tomb. In the Gospel of John, we read that Peter and John ran to the tomb, but John makes sure that you know he ran faster than Peter. (laughs) Matthew tells us that the women ran to tell the disciples. It's, you know, a little bit like Forrest Gump. Run, run! Something has happened. We don't know exactly what's going on, but there's excitement building There's a sense of urgency and expectation. And Peter gets to the tomb and he stoops down and he sees that it's empty. Only the linen cloths that had covered Jesus' body remained. Read this morning on Twitter that if Jesus, after being tortured and crucified, took time to straighten up before he left his room, why can't you? Why do you seek the living among the dead? The angels ask. It's not really a fair question, though, is it? It's a trick question. They haven't come to find the living. They've come to face death, and they've been surprised by life. Peter goes home marveling at what happens. In the place of their greatest fear and despair, The disciples are confronted with a message of life. He is not here. He has risen. This morning I want to ask you, does this message even matter? Does the empty tomb matter? What difference would it make to your life if Jesus was still in the tomb? Would it make a bit of difference if the women had found what they were looking for? 
Or maybe we can turn the question just slightly. Has it made any difference in your life, the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead? I think there are at least three differences that the resurrection of Jesus makes. Three things that I think matter to you this morning that I would like you to consider as we look at this passage. The first is that because Jesus rose from the dead, his claims are true. Because Jesus rose from the dead, his claims are true. I want you to think about all the weird things Jesus said. He made some pretty outlandish claims. He said, I and the Father are one. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He, he says, I'm equal to God. I don't know of anybody else in human history that has said something so outlandish. He says, no man can come unto the Father except by me. Jesus is very narrow. He says, I don't care what your other religious system is. I don't care what your ethics are, what your philosophy is. I don't care how nice you are. If you want salvation, if you want to know God, you got to pass through me. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't have eternal life. That was the thing that eventually sent the crowds away, shaking their heads, just saying, wow, Jesus, like stick to ethics, man. Um, we could follow you there. Think about some of the other things that Jesus had said. These outlandish claims. If Jesus had said all of these things and then remained dead, we might look back on him as an interesting figure in history, but he would be totally irrelevant. It wouldn't matter what he said. But because Jesus rose from the dead, we have to take Jesus at his word. And we have to build our life around these claims. Because Jesus didn't just claim things for himself. He also claimed things for you. Build your house on the rock. On him, on his truthfulness, on his claims. Don't store up treasures on earth. Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus is the great turning point of history. And I'm not just talking about the difference between B.C., before Christ, and A.D., in the year of our Lord. I'm talking about your own personal history, too. At some point in your life, you have to wrestle with the resurrection. Because if he, has if he has been raised from the dead, then his claim on you matters. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we know that his claims are true. That's the first thing. Secondly, because Jesus rose from the dead, we know that death itself is defeated. There is life beyond death. Don't we need to know that? as we grieve the deaths of our loved ones. Uh, this morning, Randy prayed for three specific families that are grieving the deaths of loved ones just in the last couple of weeks. Over the course of the last 18 months, we've had a number of funerals. 
Read this week that COVID deaths have surpassed one million people. Our news feeds are filled with war and death. Even here, right now, this morning, among some of us, you are facing diseases that will rob you of your children that will take away parents and siblings. What hope do you have in the face of death? Jesus lives. And because he lives, death, it doesn't have the last word. We've already sang it. Jesus lives and so shall I. Death, thy sting is gone forever. Friends, we grieve and we mourn the loss of family and loved ones, friends and innocents around the world. But we do not grieve and mourn without hope. We grieve and mourn with the expectation that Jesus will raise us and our loved ones who have died in faith. We've got to wrestle now with the claims of Jesus because he lives. Because Jesus lives, we also will live. The third thing that I want you to see is that because Jesus rose from the dead, our sins are forgiven. Had Jesus remained dead, we would still be in our sins. That's Paul's argument from 1 Corinthians 15. His death would have been no more as significant as anybody else, as the death of any other person. If Jesus had stayed dead, it would have indicated that he himself was a sinner, that he was unable to atone for our sins, that his death on the cross was just a tragedy. But because Jesus was perfectly righteous, death couldn't hold him. And now that he is risen from the dead, he assures us that what he did on the cross actually worked. The plan of God to rescue and redeem you from your sins, it's working. Romans 4, Paul tells us that Christ was raised for our justification. That means that at the moment of his resurrection from the dead, you have a claim on God. You have a claim to be righteous in his sight. That means that the sins that haunt you, the sins that seem ever-present reminders of all the reasons that God shouldn't love you. Friends, they were buried with him in his death. And they were left behind in the tomb just like those linen cloths. Now, instead of sin defining you, it is righteousness and life that defines you. Now, over time, and it's going to take a little bit of time, but over time, Peter and Mary and the other disciples, they will come to realize these things. They will come to understand all that the resurrection means. But that morning, that first day, man, everything was a blur. It was a day of confusion and fear. It was a day of wonder and joy, but no one knew exactly what was going on. But they knew that it was a day that they had to reckon with something new. 
Something new had occurred that had never before occurred. A new reality was dawning that day, and they knew they had to deal with it. And friends, you and I have to deal with it too. Do you hope in Christ? Do you trust in Jesus? Do you have faith that because of who he is and what he did, you can be right with God? If you don't, then to to borrow the angel's words, you're going to look for the living among the dead. You're going to look to find meaning and hope, status and relief from guilt and sadness. You're going to look for life but you're going to be pounding on the doors of tombs because none of those things can actually offer you that life. Some of you may have seen even this morning the video from U2's Bono that's been floating around the Twitterverse. Bono says that after his mom died, he kind of spiraled out of control. His mom was kind of the center of his world. And it was through the pain that he experienced with his mom's death that he became an artist. And he started looking for love and looking for life in his art. And then the band formed and he started looking for love and looking for life in his mates. And then they became this superstar rock star group. They became looking for love and and life in the stadiums that they would fill. He said the hole was too big to fill wasn't until he was confronted with Jesus that he knew that was the answer that he was looking for. Only Jesus can meet the need for life because only Jesus has risen again from the dead. The Bible says that he is the first fruits, the beginning of the new creation. Listen how the author C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, Christ rising from the dead is the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits. He is the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has fought. He has met. He has beaten the king of death. And everything is different because he has done so. Friends, Easter isn't just a sentimental word of encouragement to help you through a tough time in your life. It is a flesh and blood down payment on a new world. In Jesus, the world around us, the world within us that has gone so terribly wrong, in Jesus, that world is being made new. And that's why Christians are joyful on Easter. That's why we mark this day. That's why we celebrate this day. That's why we cry out, Christ is risen, He is risen indeed. Because even in the midst of pain and sadness, even in the midst of confusion and grief, we know that by the resurrection of Jesus, God has begun to make all things new even you. Let's pray. Father, we look around us and too often we are surrounded by gravestones. We have wandered into the cemeteries of life. 
And we foolishly think that we will be able to find some life in the people, the places, the institutions, the material goods that surround us. Lord, help us to see that we're looking for Jesus in all the wrong places. We pray that Christ would reveal himself to us not as some mythic figure of encouragement and sentimentality, but as the king who was raised from the dead, who ascended into heaven, who rules and reigns at your right hand, and who is coming again. Father, fix our eyes on him and give us faith to believe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.